Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I am your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a medical oncologist and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large research collaborative network between Keras Life Sciences and all of the academic institutions and healthcare systems across the country and the globe with the goal of leveraging genomic profiling, precision medicine, precision oncology, data, artificial intelligence, in order to improve the outcomes of patients with cancer through research, investigative initiated studies, as well as real-world evidence, data, and studies. Well, a few weeks ago, we were in San Francisco at the ASCO GI meeting, and today we are going to really go over just high-level data. We can't really cover everything. There are thousands of abstracts, but I've challenged my guest, Dr. Kristen Spencer, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. She is the director of the Phase One Developmental Therapeutics Program at NYU. I challenged her to find us few abstracts that are very clinically relevant, and they may be really important for you listeners to really know about as to whatever happening in GI oncology. Back in the day when I was a fellow, the most pressing question in GI oncology was, how do you give 5-fluorouracil? Today, no more. So, Dr. Kristen Spencer on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, discussing high-level data from the annual ASCO GI meeting. Kristen, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Appreciate you tuning in. I know you're always, always busy. So any any few minutes with you mean a lot to me and to our listeners. Maybe just a quick introduction about you and and your background and 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 uh, where you are now and what you do. How 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 does your day look like? Sure. Uh, my name is Kristen Spencer. As you said, I'm a medical oncologist right now at NYU Langone Perlmutter Cancer Center. And I recently took over as the director of their phase one developmental therapeutics program. But I also, by by training and background, am a medical oncologist practicing in hepatopancreatobiliary tumors. So I see patients with, um, as I said, cholangiocarcinoma, pancreas tumors, and, and hepatocellular carcinoma predominantly. What uh, what got you interested in GI oncology? Anything, any story behind that? Or just that's what always fell in your lap? You know, it's it's an interesting story. I, I got into oncology in general because, you know, I unfortunately lost my mom to metastatic colon cancer when I was very young. She was only 37. And I was always drawn to oncology throughout the course of my training. And I remember having a conversation with my father when I was trying to choose the next steps in my career after fellowship. And, and you know, as we all know, some of that is a little bit about timing and what's available. And I, I was considering jobs that weren't necessarily within the GI space and having a little bit of a difficulty with that, given that my mom had colon cancer. And I remember my father saying to me that, Kristen, your mother would want you to go where the patients need you. And as it turned out, a job actually opened up at Rutgers collaborating with uh, Dr. Darren Carpizo, who is a pancreas liver surgeon who has a lab and I was able to marry my love of early phase research um, with patients with pancreas and liver tumors. That's what he did. So it all worked out in the end. And it turns out that is still where the patients uh, need me is in that space. So that's the it started there and ended there. <laughs> Sorry about uh, what led to this You know, losing your mother at such a young age. Um, it, it must be um, 
uh, very traumatic. I mean, losing losing a mom at any age is a very traumatic experience. So I can only imagine what you went through. Thank you. Thank you. You were at ASCO GI, and uh, you uh, uh, there's a lot of things that go in thousands of abstracts. So I, I think I tasked you with an impossible task, which is, uh, um, you know, to talk about a few abstracts. So this does not mean for listeners that the other abstracts that Dr. Spencer will not mention were not important, but we have a limited time. So we're trying to focus on ones that may have kind of immediate or uh, clinical applications that are very relevant to oncologists. So let's go with number one. You know, and as I mentioned, you know, with my focus, I, of course, was really interested in hearing some of the really um, highly anticipated abstracts in the pancreas and biliary space. But one that also caught that my attention was the results of the spotlight trial. And this was actually looking at an investigational monoclonal antibody that targets Claudin 18.2, which is a protein that's expressed on um, many cancerous epithelial cells. This study was particularly looking at patients who had um, locally advanced metastatic gastric cancer. And, you know, I think what, what captured my attention is that we're always looking for biomarkers of response and how to have more informed therapeutic um, options for patients. So looking at a specific protein, an agent that targets a specific protein that is not just expressed on gastric cancer, but pancreas cancer, several other tumor types, I think was fascinating. And in this trial, patients were randomized one-to-one to zolbituximab, which is the investigational agent I mentioned, in combination with modified Fulfox-6 or placebo with the same chemotherapy backbone. And they were looking at a um, primary endpoint of progression-free survival and um, really were able to demonstrate an improvement in progression-free survival from about 8.6, I believe, months to 10.6 months with the investigational agent, and the hazard ratio was about uh, 0.75. And um, this also was seen across their um, improved efficacy was also seen across their secondary endpoints. So they improved median overall survival from 15.5 to 18.2 months and saw a um, really improved response rate as well, which is encouraging for many of our patients. Um, they saw um disease control rates of, of approximately 60% um, as compared to a little bit lower around uh, 55% with, with the um, MFOLFOX by itself. I think what was really interesting about this trial as well is there's, there's certainly going to be patients where we have a little bit of overlap between what are some of our already known and established biomarkers such as pd one as well as clonin expression. And we've seen, of course, at this point, multiple studies demonstrating the benefit of including a checkpoint inhibitor with chemotherapy in this same population of patients. So what a lot of folks in the field are talking about right now is how we would really stratify these patients? How would we figure out what the best option is, particularly in the first-line setting? And I think ultimately at this point, what it's going to come down to in those folks that have both options available is perhaps when patients have a bit higher pdl one expression status, that we choose to go first with the, the pdl one or checkpoint inhibitor-based combination strategy. 
And for patients that perhaps need a um, more robust and, and quicker time to response, we may choose that option as well. But the, the jury is really still out. So that's ongoing investigation. And I think we still need to, to really understand who it is that's benefiting the most from, from these types of regimens. So um, intriguing, but in many ways does still leave us with more questions than answers at that point, at this point. Is it possible to combine an anti-PD-L1 with the anti-Claudine and forego chemotherapy? Is that even being looked at? Uh, I, I believe that that is planned and will be ongoing. And if not, we just gave, um, you know, many folks an idea for an investigator-initiated study that they could certainly pitch. Well, but here's the deal. If anybody is listening to this and they are thinking of an investigator-initiated study, it, they're out of a lot because you have the right of first refusal. This is yours right now, officially. Uh, yeah. Kristen, how do we have a, what's the frequency of expression of the uh, Claudine protein? The Claudine protein. Yeah. You know, I think that that's um, also something that we're in the works um, of trying to really sort it out now as well. Part of the, the problem with that is we really, there are many studies, for instance, there's um, an IMAB study that's a, a bispecific that's um, combining essentially a T-cell engager with the anti-Claudine monoclonal antibody. And they're really developing their companion IHC assay while the phase one study is going. So I, I do think that we're we're seeing it anywhere from, you know, reports of 20%, 40%. Um, it's That's a little bit, I think, being written as well, too, from that standpoint. So hopefully as more of these studies read out in the phase one setting, we'll have more information on that as well. Great. That's very intriguing. Next. Yeah. So the next two studies, I think, um, were a, a lesson in more, not necessarily being more in the hepatobiliary space. The first study that we were interested in awaiting the readout for was the phase two randomized double-blind Imbrave 151 trial, which was looking at the addition of bevacizumab to gemcitabine, cisplatin, and atezolizumab in patients with first-line advanced biliary tract cancer. And um, Dr. Elkowari presented the um, results of this study, and they had 162 participants that were enrolled. They were randomly assigned to, as I said, gemcitabine, cisplatin, atezolizumab, and bevacizumab, or gemcitabine, cisplatin, atezolizumab, and placebo. So essentially a variation on the Topaz-1 regimen, which we know combines gemcitabine, cisplatin, and dervalumab. And they looked at a primary endpoint of progression-free survival and saw that at median follow-up of approximately 11 months, uh, PFS was improved from 7.9 months with placebo only to 8.3 months. So it wasn't an overwhelmingly positive study, but I do think that what it did tell us is we did see that the six-month PFS rates and ongoing, just like in the Topaz-1 regimen, um, there does appear to be a, a difference there in that the experimental arm had a six-month progression-free survival rate of 78.2% as compo uh, compared to 63.1% with the placebo arm. And so we are still waiting overall survival data, but we see that the separations of the curves supports that there are some patients that are, are really benefiting from these particular combination strategies. In fact, they did also present a post hoc analysis of progression-free survival, looking at patients that had a complete response or partial response as compared to those that had stable disease. And the 
patients that had a, a response had a median PFS that was not able to be estimated as compared to 8.3 months, which was also the PFS we saw in those with stable disease. So clearly in some patients, more is more, but again, we still need to, to get more information on who that is. And I think we are we learned that lesson or began to learn that lesson with Topaz and are still trying to look at those factors even from that study as well. So again, still trying to, to figure out who benefits, but it's clear some people do. The second uh, abstract that was sort of in the same theme was the um, highly anticipated SWOG 1815 study. That was a phase three randomized open label trial that was looking at the addition of abraxane to gemcitabine cisplatin as compared to gemcitabine cisplatin in this same patient population. And this was really done off of a phase two trial that showed that the median overall survival with this triplet regimen was somewhere on the order of 19 months, which was really something we had not seen in these patients before. And unfortunately, you know, what we found from this particular study was that the primary endpoint of median overall survival was not statistically significantly improved, 14 months as compared to 12.7 months, and the p-value, as I mentioned, did not meet statistical significance. Neither did the median PFS or response rate. Of course, this triplet regimen does come with increased toxicity. They they did have to do some um, modifications to the regimen sort of mid-protocol. I think it's tolerable in select patients. And we also saw some indications of activity, particularly in patients that had locally advanced disease and gallbladder cancer. Those patients really had improvements in, in response over the rest of the general population, as well as PFS and overall survival. I think that those numbers are really small. So it's at this point hypothesis generating, but I would love to see whether more is more in some patients yet again. Um, that we have to determine who those patients really might be. So there's perhaps still room for this regimen, say, in patients that we ultimately want to try and get to, to surgical resection, um, but, but was not something we could generalize to the whole population of patients with biliary tract cancers, unfortunately. It's interesting you mentioned with the SWOC study that the response rate was not even higher. Oftentimes with these, like once you add more drugs, you get generally, you get better response, but the response doesn't always translate into right. PFS or OS. Right. Surprised that even response was not better. Right. And it it was in the phase two. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly what goes into, you know, that in, in the no. phase three. I think it's a mystery would all, we would all love to solve, uh, particularly in the NCI as we, um, you know, translate these promising phase two studies into randomized phase threes. But um, yeah, it was, uh, I think, overall disappointing. But again, in certain subsets, we did see that difference in response. So I think important to still investigate. You know, but you really hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, we would like to refine the to, to, and, and to predict, maybe there's a subset of patients that really would benefit from increasing the you know the the treatment and and we just need to know this i always compare and contrast Kristen, with uh, adjuvant therapy right we know that we treat the majority of patients in the adjuvant setting to benefit the few we already know that i mean the the, the whole you know hallmark of adjuvant therapy is you treat everyone with node positive disease but you know some of these node positives are cured right right I wish we know how to do this. And I don't know what you and your colleagues in the GI field are doing to try to separate these patients, whether this is on the genomic level, whether this is clinical variables, multivariate analyses, 
will be interesting to follow this for us on the sidelines, trying to figure out how uh, how you are able to hopefully find this subset of patient population that may benefit from a particular effective regimen. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think at, at this point in time, for many of us, while biomarkers and more sophisticated techniques are are being incorporated more routinely, I think ultimately it's still coming down to very personal discussions with patients and oftentimes um, probably side effect profile that's, you know, uh, helping us make these treatment decisions as everybody is obviously not a candidate. Yeah. Okay. What's next? So the next study that I was really fascinated by was the Napoli 3 study, which is a phase three trial that was looking at the safety and safety and efficacy of first line nalirifox, as opposed to gemcitabine and abraxane in patients with metastatic uh, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. And so patients were randomized one-to-one to receive traditional gemcitabine and abraxane or Bifluorouracil in combination with liposomal arenotecan, 50 milligrams per meter squared. And they enrolled 770 participants. They were pretty evenly divided. And what they did see um, from the standpoint of primary endpoint was that patients that were treated with nalirifox had a statistically significantly improved median overall survival from 9.2 months to 11.1 months with gemcitabine abraxane. They also saw this improvement in progression-free survival, improving from 5.6 months to 7.4 months. I think that the interesting point about this, though perhaps not unexpected, is that we, of course, see sort of differences in toxicity profile. We saw perhaps a little less bone marrow suppression, but we did see grade three or four treatment-related adverse events in over 10% of patients, including diarrhea that um, had a dramatic difference. We saw that in 20% of patients that received the liposomal arenotecan as compared to only 4.5% with gemabraxime, as well as significantly increased nausea, 11.9 versus 2.6%. So if you think about it from the standpoint of, of what patients really, I think, symptomatically or lifestyle standpoint suffer from, um, nausea and diarrhea really being big factors for patients. And one thing that we spoke about in the in the in-person meeting that really has to be, I think, thought about as we move forward with all of our investigations is the financial toxicity of these types of regimens. Liposomal arenotecan, of course, comes with you know additional toxicity from the financial standpoint. It's an expensive drug to give. So I don't know whether this will translate, um, if this if this sort of modest overall survival improvement will translate into widespread change um, for most for most people's practices given that problem. I do think though it calls into question what we're using as our comparator arm going forward in metastatic pancreatic cancer trials. It really does seem that fulfirinox might be the appropriate comparator arm as opposed to gemcitabine and abraxane. And that and that was a a comment that came up a lot during that that um, open oral abstract session that fulfirinox, why was that not chosen as the comparator arm? So I think it's definitely something to consider. Actually, that was exactly my question, and I wasn't there in person. I, I'm aware of the fulfirinox um, being superior to gemcitabine abraxane. Was, was the trial conceived prior to that data, or do you think... Um, uh, yeah, I'm confused a little bit. Maybe they could have done a non-inferiority trial looking at the um, Porphyronox versus the liposomal. 
Yeah, I don't know that we we got a a totally clear answer on why why one was chosen over the other. Um, but I think, you know, definitely something, as I said, to think about going forward, what the right choice is meant to be. Um, so, so as I said, something for yeah. consideration. Yeah. And Kristen, for the older patient with pancreatic cancer, and obviously age sometimes is subjective, but for Ferenox is a rough regimen. I mean, we can all agree on that. Um, is there, do you just use performance tests to decide for Ferenox versus, or, or do you really feel that you gemabraxane, we're at the point where it has no role because you're able to give older patients who may be a little bit more frail the full Pharanox. Yeah, this is really a tough question because, you know, I think it's something that we we sort of espouse out there in the field that fulfirinox is, is so much more difficult to tolerate than gemcitabine abraxane. And I, I don't know that that's actually true. Gemcitabine abraxane is no, no walk in the park either. Their toxicity profiles are a bit different. But gemcitabine abraxane does, you know, come with the issues of alopecia. It comes with um, its own risk for neuropathy, um, albeit a little bit different mechanistically from fulfirinox and bone marrow suppression, infection, febrile neutropenia. You know, it has its own its own risks and can be um, a bit tough to tolerate for patients. I do think from the efficacy standpoint, in very carefully considered patients, I offer fulfirinox to many of my older patients that I think are fit after careful discussions about the side effect profile. I do at times dose reducing reduce things a little bit off the outset and then escalate if they're tolerating really well. But I think we've gotten very good as, as a community at knowing and expecting certain toxicities educating our patients about them in advance and managing them really well and aggressively that we can get patients through that regimen, both of them, actually. It's really great to know because we'd like to be able to, you know, managing toxicities for effective regimens. Hopefully we can get patients through that. What else uh, struck you at ASCO-GI? Yeah, so there was another study, the Sunlight Trial, which was a phase three study that was looking at the addition of bevacizumab to uh, trifluoridine tipercil as Lonsurf, as we, we commonly know it, in patients with refractory metastatic colorectal cancer. Specifically, they were enrolling patients who had been um, histologically confirmed metastatic colorectal cancer and were treated with one to two lines of prior therapy in the advanced setting. And they enrolled almost 500 patients. It was a one-to-one -one randomization to either Lonsurf alone or Lonsurf with the addition of bevacizumab. And they had a um, primary endpoint of median overall survival, and they were able to improve median overall survival from 10.8 months with the addition of bevacizumab to 7.5 months with Lonsurf alone. And they noticed the survival benefit across all subgroups of patients. They really saw no differences with regard to age, uh, location of disease, of the primary site of disease, number of metastatic sites, or RAS status. And I think what is really nice about this trial is that it really um, sort of adds a little bit of kick to a regimen that traditionally we we don't see a ton of response. We, we see very modest improvements in things like median PFS and OS, and is, is now a potential um, practice changing next line or third third or fourth line regimen for patients who otherwise perhaps would not have had that option as long as they're eligible for bevacizumab. So I think it um, should be considered as a new preferred treatment option in this setting. Obviously, you know, I'm a, I'm a trialist at heart. 
So I think that uh, I would always I would always um, tend to insert clinical trials in this space, but I think certainly exciting. Not everybody can can do that. That's not an option for everybody, and I, I think is really a serious something we can should consider seriously going forward. That's wonderful. A lot of data, and I know we're coming on time, so I want to be very respectful of your time and your busy schedule. But anything, anything in the adjuvant setting that, or are we still where we were since last ASCO GI in the adjuvant setting, which, which, whatever, whatever tumor, anything new there? Yeah, you know, we really there have been a lot of um, studies that were presented, and I know this is a space where Caris is really active, looking at CT DNA. And how do we how do we best sort of risk stratify patients in the adjuvant setting after they've received a potentially curative resection of their tumor? Um, how do we figure out who's really the most at need for chemotherapy? How do we track patients going forward to figure out who's most at risk and detect them early? And you know we did see um, several abstracts looking at CT DNA. There was one that was interesting monitoring CT DNA. Um, in patients with anal cancer after they received chemo radiation, and uh, they essentially looked at um, CT DNA after patients, as I said, received definitive chemo RT, and noted that patients who had CT DNA levels monitored may have a, res- a faster response um, assessment in patients that had clinically detectable CT DNA. So they they actually looked at this across several or different time points in the study, and they found that. The median um, baseline CTDNA was lower in patients who cleared their CTDNA mid-treatment as opposed to those who cleared it um, post-complete treatment. So suggest a role for possible CTDNA monitoring at more time points than we're we're potentially used to. And they also noted that patients that had stage 1 and 2 disease were more likely to clear their CTDNA than those with stage 3. And I think that the most important thing that they noticed was that the median time to molecular ctDNA remission in 30 days was significantly shorter than the median time to complete clinical response that we're generally um, evaluating now in these patients to determine whether further therapy is indicated after definitive chemo RT. So I think really exciting, as I said, across the board, use of ctDNA, and I, I foresee that just being elaborated on and, and continuing. Anything else um, that metastatic, adjuvant, whatever you want, uh, maybe the, the last the last thing, if you have anything further before we let you go back to your busy schedule. Yeah, I would, um, in, without going into a ton of detail, I would, I would take a look at uh, Dr. Laura Dawson's study that looked at incorporating um, TACE or chemoembolization with serafinib in patients who had hepatocellular carcinoma. It, it's perhaps not a huge splash at this point because the standard first line regimen changed in the middle of this study while it was ongoing and is now atezolizumab in combination with bevacizumab and patients that are eligible to receive bevacizumab. So serafinib is maybe something that we're using later on, if at all. However, the the notable point from that study was that radiation did improve outcomes for patients, particularly subsets of patients that had high-risk features like macrovascular disease. So I think what this really demonstrates for us is that, you know, there is likely a role for radiation in the management of these patients and should certainly be something we consider incorporating into study designs going forward in patients with HCC. Amazing. Just amazing the advances that have happened over the past decade. Absolutely. Dr. Spencer, thank you so much for visiting with me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. And until next time, next ASCO. Thank you. 
Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Don't forget to let me know about the podcast. Subscribe to it. Rate it. Write a brief review. And send me a message to my email, cnabhan at karisls.com, or direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, letting me know what you think about the podcast and suggest any topics. The Karis Molecular Minute podcast at the intersection of clinical medicine and precision oncology. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time.